Thank you, Andrea. Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we are beginning on page 192. Deuteronomy means a repeating or a retelling of the law. And that's exactly what we see as we go through this book. The people of God have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, finally, the time is now. The time is ready to enter into the promised land. And so Moses gathers the people together. He's 120 years old. And he knows his time is short. He wants the people to remember who they are. They're God's people. They're a holy people, set apart by God and loved by God. And before they take possession of the promised land, he wants to tell them the story of how God brought them out of Egypt, how God miraculously guided them and provided for them through the wilderness. You know the stories, water from a rock, manna and quail, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And Moses wants every man and woman, every boy and girl to hear those stories again and to know that God fought for them and cared for them. And he wants them to remember God's law. As the people of God, their job is to live out God's law in this new land and to put His holiness on display. The world would see God through the holy living of His people. And so we see Moses delivering a series of farewell sermons. These are the things that really matter the most as the people say goodbye to the wilderness and as they take their first steps into the Holy Land. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we reach a high point. This passage is known as the Shema. That's Hebrew and it means to hear or to listen. And that's exactly how Moses begins. Listen up. He's ready to say something to the people that is very important for their lives. And in these few verses, Moses shows us what it really means and what it really looks like to live as God's people. So, turn with me again to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'll begin reading at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, and when you rise. First thing I want us to see is that God is a God of 
relationship. And we see that in verse 4. It's only four words in Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And I've said before, if you see the word Lord in all caps, you know that it's the divine name, Yahweh. This is the name that God used when He spoke to Moses from the burning bush. This is the name by which God confronted Pharaoh in Egypt. And it's the name God used when He entered into a covenant with the Hebrews at Mount Horeb. This is the name that tells us that God is a promise maker and He's a promise keeper. He is a God of relationship. Flip back about one page in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses is reminding the people here of what happened at Mount Horeb. Remember, a whole generation has passed away. But listen to what Moses says in verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. What he's saying is that God chose us. God chose us to be his people. And he brought our fathers and our mothers to Mount Horeb. And that's where they exchanged their vows. God made promises. He promised to protect them and to care for them and to bless them. And the promises that God made that day are just as true and just as real for us as they were to your mothers and fathers. He is a God of relationship. And we see that so clearly in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. <clears throat> so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When we're saved, God forgives our sins and He pronounces a, a judgment of not guilty over our lives. And He does that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But He does even more than that. He adopts us. Okay? We become a part of His family. We are sons and daughters. If you know Jesus personally as your Savior, you are a king's kid. Everything the Father owns is yours to share. And I think most of us probably know that. We, we've read it. We know that it's true, but I'm not sure we really understand how outrageous God's love is and how outrageous God's grace is. And I want to try to give us a better perspective. I've been a fan of space and astronomy for as long as I can remember. 
and I like reading the newest news uh, about the space world. Um, the uh, SpaceX launches next week, by the way, so watch for that. <clears throat> but maybe some of you uh, have heard about the James Webb Space Telescope. It's the largest and the most powerful telescope that's ever been launched into space. It's almost a million miles away, so it's four times farther from the Earth than the Moon. And uh, it was built specifically to take pictures of deep space. And I want to show you the first picture that was released. Travis, can you put that up on the screen? No? No? Okay. Well, the good news is it's on your bulletin. So if you look at the front of your bulletin, um, this is the very first picture that uh, was sent back from the telescope. And it's called Stephan's Quintet. It's a cluster of giant galaxies that are uh, in the center of the picture. And it's set against a star field with hundreds and hundreds of stars. Except, those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. Hundreds and hundreds of galaxies. And each of those galaxies has hundreds of millions of stars. And that's from one picture. God spoke those galaxies into existence. What does the book of Genesis tell us? And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And it was so. It was the Word of God that created the universe. And right now, the Word of God is upholding the universe and sustaining it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The God of the universe is busy running the universe. The God of the universe is keeping every star in every one of those galaxies lit and all the planets in their orbits. But listen, this is what I'm driving at. As awesomely big and powerful and majestic as He is, the God of the universe knows you. He knows you. He knows your birthday. He knows your favorite color. Kids, He knows exactly what foods you refuse to eat at the supper table. He knows your hopes and your dreams and the deepest desires of your heart. And He also knows your sins. Every time you messed up, every time you fell short, every time you did what you wanted to do and thumbed your nose at God, He knows. But that wasn't enough to stop the love of God from reaching out to us. We couldn't reach up to God, so He reached down. 
He came to earth. Jesus, the Son of God. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. And He died as a perfect sacrifice for your sins. He died for you. The God of the universe died for you. And if you don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, here's the good news. It can happen today. You can be brought into God's family today. How can I do that? First step, confess that you're a sinner. That means you agree with God that you've broken His law and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. Next, repent of your sins. That means making a change in the direction of your life. You turn away from your sins and you turn to God. And then you put your faith in Jesus. That means you're putting your whole life into His hands. He died to save you and He rose again to give you victory over death. And you say, Jesus, that's what I want. I want you to save me. I want to live forever with you. Come into my life and make me new from the inside out so I can live for you. He's a God of relationship. And I pray that someone in this room, someone within the hearing of my voice, will say yes to Jesus today. And you can be brought into the family of God. So Moses is speaking to this crowd and he reminds them who God is. He's a God of relationship. And these two million Hebrews are his people. But look again at verse 4. He's the God of relationship. But look at the rest of the verse. The Lord is one. And I could give you a, a whole sermon on this part of the verse and how it confirms the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three in one. But that is another sermon for another day. And besides, that's not really what Moses wants the people to know. Keep in mind what they're coming out of. The land of Egypt was the home to thousands of gods. Most of their gods were associated with nature. There was a river god, a sun god, an earth god. Thousands of gods to pray to and worship. And they're getting ready now to enter into the land of Canaan, the land God promised. And it was full of false gods too. The people worshipped fertility gods like Baal and Asherah. Baal was the storm god who brought the rain. And Asherah was a fertility goddess who made sure that the flocks and the herds prospered. And so Moses stands up and he speaks to the people and he wants to make one thing clear. That's not who you are. The gods of Egypt are nothing but lifeless hunks of wood and stone. The gods of Canaan are nothing but lifeless hunks of wood and stone. There's only one true and living God. He chose us and He set us apart as His people. He's got a plan for us. He's the one who brought us this far and He's the one who will take us into the promised land. 
The one true and living God is our God and we are His people. And that should be the battle cry for every Christian. We have our own Shema in the New Testament. Uh, if you look at 1 Timothy 2.5, here's what uh, Paul says. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One God. And God alone is worthy of our worship. God alone is worthy of our highest affection. And we have to guard our hearts against idolatry. Now we don't have idols of wood and stone. But we can bring things into our lives and make them idols. Whatever you would uh, bring into your life and elevate so that it becomes more important or more meaningful to you than God, that's an idol. Um, yeah, I have to put in my uh, mandatory Spurgeon quote for your dad. Um, Spurgeon, Spur, Spurgeon preached 150 years ago, and I do have to tell this story. I was with the kids Wednesday night, and I showed them a picture of Spurgeon, and I said, who is this? And they said, it's you. <laughs> so, it could be worse. <laughs> but Spurgeon preached a sermon 150 years ago, and it's really just as relevant today. Listen to what he said. My hearers, there are some of you who never worship God. I know you come up to his house, but then it is only to be seen or to quiet your conscience by having done your duty. How many of you merchants aim only to accumulate a fortune? How many of you tradesmen are living only for your families? How many young men breathe only for pleasure? How many young women exist only for amusement and vanity? I fear some among you make your belly your God and bow down to your own personal charms or comforts. Talk of idolaters, they are here today. So I want to challenge you, Christian. Is God truly your highest priority? Is He number one in your life, or have you made something else an idol? And I'll be as bold as Spurgeon was. Tear down the idols and let God be God. Amen? So God is a God of relationship. That's what we see in verse 4. And then next in verse 5, we see how to love God. How to love God. Verse 5 is probably the part of the Shema that's familiar to most of us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And the reason it's familiar is because it shows up in the Gospels. You might remember the story. The Pharisees were testing Jesus. They were trying to lay a trap. And as he's teaching the crowds, one of them asks a question. What is the greatest of God's commandments? And Jesus quoted this verse. And he said it was the first and greatest commandment. I'm afraid we don't always have a good understanding of the Old Testament. We think it's an old, dusty book with old, dusty laws. 
But really, the heartbeat of the Old Testament is love. I like what John MacArthur says about this verse. First, in the list of things essential for the Old Testament believer was an unreserved, wholehearted commitment expressed in love to God. And if you and I want to be faithful followers of Jesus, this verse is key. This verse shows us what our love for God is supposed to look like. And it has three dimensions. We're to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. And I want us to take a look at each one of those. First of all, what does it mean to love God with all our heart? And I guess we have to begin by asking, what is the heart, right? Uh, I'm not talking about the blood-pumping organ. Your, uh, your heart, biblically speaking, is something spiritual that's inside us. Uh, you might think of it as the center of your spiritual life. It's also the seat of our emotions and our desires and even our thoughts. And that's why uh, the prophet Jeremiah says in uh, chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Before we come to God, our heart is messed up. It's sick and it's wicked and it doesn't even know what it wants. But when we're saved, something amazing happens. God gives us a new heart. He gives us new thoughts, new desires. In theology, we call this regeneration. And uh, years ago, I, I preached from this text. The prophet Ezekiel talks about this in uh, chapter 36, verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so we're to take this God-given, God-restored heart and we're to love God with it, with all of our heart. What does that look like? Well, for one thing, we love God emotionally. Love engages our emotions, right? Love always brings affection and gentleness and devotion, and that's true for our love of God. But the heart means more than just our emotions. It means our thoughts and our desires too. We love God with our desires by putting God first. We bring our desires into line with His. We desire the things that God desires. We love the things that God loves. We love God with our thoughts by having a pure thought life. And I, I don't really have time, but if you want to dig a little deeper into that, I suggest reading uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. We also remember God with our thoughts by remembering His Word, making God the focus of our thoughts, remembering His good promises and the good things that He's done in our lives. And I think it also means navigating life 
with the mind of Christ. We begin to see things through a biblical lens. And we make life choices by reading God's Word and applying it. That's loving God with all our heart. But we're also to love God with all our soul. Now the, the word that's used here is nephesh. It's used throughout the creation narratives. And it's usually translated as a living being or creature. Uh, and I, I picked out a verse for us to look at. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. This is where God is creating man. It's, uh, Moses writes, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a nephesh. He became a living creature. Uh, it's usually translated creature or being, sometimes even life, depending on the context. Um, I saw that the New English translation uh, translates this part of the verse by saying, we're to love God with all our being. And I think that captures the idea. Uh, we are to love God completely. And our, our love for God isn't to be compartmentalized. It's not like it's just one slice of our life along with things like work and marriage and free time. Our love for God should permeate every part of our lives. I read a book a few years ago that was looking at the things that Jesus taught from the Old Testament and uh, giving them some Old Testament context. I wanted to share this quote. I thought it was helpful. The Jewish interpretation of this line is that you are to love the Lord with all your life, meaning with every moment throughout your life. Loving God with all your life is the exact opposite of our culture's expectation that you'll wedge a few moments for God in between work, hobbies, sports, TV, and the latest movie. So we love God with all our heart and we love God with all our being, all our life, all our time. And then finally, we're to love God with all our might. And uh, here we run into something interesting in the Hebrew, uh, we're to love God with all our ma'od. That's what uh, it says in the Hebrew. And that word, it, I, I think I remember learning that word the first day of Hebrew class. Uh, it's usually translated uh, as very or greatly or exceedingly. It, it's used hundreds of times in, in the Old Testament. But here, it's used as a noun. It's not describing something. It is something. So how do you take uh, very and greatly and exceedingly and turn that into a noun? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I looked at some different translations. Um, ESV, I think, says might. Others say strength. <laughs> there was one Hebrew scholar uh, who said the best way to interpret this part of the Shema is to love God with all your oomph. <laughs> I can live with that. I mean, that, that lets you know what Moses was driving at. Whatever we do for God, we do with gusto. We do with intensity. We give God our best. And He's worthy of a love 
that's full throttled. So verse 5 shows us what our love for God should look like. We love God with all our heart, with every part of our life, and then it's a love that's intense. It's got gusto to it. And then we come to verse 6, and we see that we have God's Word on our hearts. God's Word on our hearts. Here's what verse 6 says. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So what have we seen so far? Moses began by reminding us that God is a God of relationship. He's the only true and living God. And then he explained what a genuine love for God should look like. And now he turns his attention to God's word, God's law. And I said earlier that Moses knew his time was short. And so as he stands before the crowds, he's not giving them a locker room speech. He knows that they need to hear the word of God. This is his opportunity to put the Word of God out there for them. And so he stands before the crowds and he's speaking the Word of God. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 9, we read that Moses wrote down everything that he said and he gave it to the priests so that it could be preserved. And that's why when you and I open our Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, we can have confidence that it's not only the inspired Word of God, but that it's been preserved for us. But here's the question. What were the people supposed to do with God's Word now that it's been given to them? And that's what verse 6 is really all about. Notice what Moses doesn't say. He doesn't say that they should keep it locked up and treat it like a holy relic. He doesn't say they should pull it out and read it in case of emergency, he says, this word, this word belongs inside you. This is the living word of God. It brings life. It brings hope. It makes your path straight. It answers the questions of life, death, and eternity. And Moses said, this word should be on your heart. We've already taken a look at what the heart is. It's our emotions, it's our desires, it's our thought life. But how can we take God's Word and let it work its way into all of those different parts of our life? I think I found the answer in Psalm 119. And I know Pastor was uh, doing a teaching on Wednesdays um, a few months ago out of Psalm 119. But listen to what the psalmist says, beginning in verse 9. This, this is the longest psalm in the, uh, in the Psalter. I think it has 176 verses. But there's only one theme, and that's the Word of God. And so here's what the psalmist says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So we, uh, as you read through those verses, you see all of the different things that the psalmist does. He stores up God's word. Um, other translations say uh, he hides it, or even better, he treasures it in his heart. That means he memorizes it so that it's always there, it's always available. He declares God's word. That means he repeats it to keep it fresh in his mind, and he's willing to share it publicly. He delights in God's word. That means he rejoices over the things God says. And he meditates on God's word. That means he studies it. He mulls it over in his mind. He asks questions. He wants to know everything God has to say about every single verse that he reads. And that's a tall order, I know. But living for God means loving his word. And Psalm 119 gives us a good roadmap for how to do that. I want to take you back to 1968. In 1968, North Korea captured the USS Pueblo and its crew of 83 men. These men were imprisoned and tortured for 11 months. The North Koreans confiscated everything from them, including their Bibles. But some of the men secretly gathered scraps of paper and began writing Bible verses and hymns to keep up their morale. It became known as the Pueblo Bible. I want to challenge you with a question. If you were a part of the Pueblo crew and you wrote down all of the verses that you've memorized through your life, how big would your Bible be? Could you fill one scrap of paper? Maybe two or three? I'm not trying to embarrass you or make you feel guilty, um, but it's really a question that every, quest, every Christian should ask. You know, when it really matters, and when you need God's Word right now, so you can face a challenge or a temptation or a crisis in your life, you may not have access to a Bible. And the question is, will you be able to find it here? If you do what Moses says, and if you do what the psalmist says, the Word of God will make its home in your heart. Paul says it beautifully in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. That's the point. So we have God's word on our hearts. And then lastly, we have God's word on our lips. God's word on our lips. Uh, let's finish by looking together at verse 7. And here's what Moses says. You shall teach them diligently to your children. 
and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You know, if you think about it, we've been steadily working our way to this point. We started with knowing God personally. He's a God of relationship. Then we saw how we were to love God. Then we talked about God's Word. Uh, We're to let God's Word penetrate our hearts so that it's filling our uh, emotions and our desires and our thoughts. And now we see that God expects us to be stewards of His Word. We're not uh, to just hide it away in our hearts. We have an obligation to teach it and to share it. And it begins with our families. I love our FBC teachers. I think they're incredible. And I know how much they love your kids. I know how much they love teaching. But God gives this job first to moms and dads. The family is ordained by God. And here we see the family is how God intended for our children to hear His Word and to see it lived out. I read this in uh, Matthew Henry's commentary. Moses thought his law so very plain and easy that every father might be able to instruct his sons in it and every mother her daughters. Thus that good thing which is committed to us we must carefully transmit to those who come after us. The home is where our children live, and that's where they should hear the word being faithfully taught and shared and lived out. And and listen, I know how daunting that must sound, but that's why the church comes alongside you to encourage you and to equip you. I know that's one of... Pastor Brady's passions, and frankly, that's one of the reasons we hired a family life pastor in the first place. We want to be a help. We want to be a resource so that parents, you can be the kind of teachers that God wants you to be. So what is this teaching supposed to look like? Well, the ESV says we're to teach God's Word diligently. Uh, The New Living Translation says we're to repeat God's words again and again. I think you get the idea. But really, I think the Hebrew says it even better. It literally means to take a knife and sharpen it on a whetstone. I don't know how many kids still have their knives and, and sharpen them, but you can imagine just taking that knife and running it across that whetstone again and again, stopping and checking the blade, and then continuing to just go stroke by stroke until it has a keen edge. It's something that takes time and it takes focus. And that's how it is when you're teaching your children. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes time and it takes focus. You know, reading the Bible together, uh, sharing Bible stories, uh, having prayer time together, spending that that quality time and that scripture-focused time, teaching them the fundamentals, and then just watching them grow up in their faith. It can be challenging, 
I know. But it's always, always rewarding. And then what about the rest of verse 7? Here's where I want us to, to finish up. What does Moses mean when he says that we should talk about God's words when we're sitting and walking and when we're rising and lying down? Well, through the centuries, the, uh, the rabbis have made the Shema a prayer that's prayed every day. And they have torn these verses apart, literally, uh, trying to understand exactly when to pray. And I'll show you what I mean. The text says we're to say God's words when we rise. So that means morning, right? But when in the morning? Well, the rabbis debated back and forth. Is it when the first faint light is visible in the eastern sky? No, no. Is it when it's light enough that you can distinguish between blue and white? No. Is it when you can distinguish between blue and green? Maybe. But you can see how they missed it. They, they missed the real message of this verse. Moses wasn't trying to give us a schedule for when we should say our prayers. He's giving us a picture a picture of what it looks like to be a man or a woman whose life is filled with the Word of God. You're reciting God's Word when you get up in the morning. You're reading, you're sharing it throughout the, the, the day. You're, you're teaching it to your kids. And we even, even when it's bedtime, the Word of God is still on your heart. God wants His Word to be integral to be incorporated into every part of our lives and to shape our lives. His Word should guide us through the day. It should give us a godly hope and a godly peace. And it should help us live lives that are pleasing to God and that shine Jesus to the world around us. And I wonder if you can say that's true of your life today. Is the Word of God on your lips from the time you wake up until your head hits the pillow? Is your life filled with the Word of God? I pray that it is. So what do we take away from our text today? If we have a real personal relationship with Jesus, what do these verses from the Shema teach us? Number one... He's the one and only God. And He is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our worship. Number two, we're to have a radical love for God. We're to love God with all our heart. We're to love God with every part of our life, every moment of our life. And we are to love God with intensity. And then number four, the Word of God should be on our hearts. And number five, the Word of God should be on our lips. You know, I began today with Moses, and I want to end with Moses. Uh, so if you'll turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just like me, Moses is winding up his sermon. But he wants to come back to this theme of God's Word. And I can't say it any better than Moses. 
I love how this reads. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But, you should underline this verse in your Bible, but the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. Why? So that you can do it. Amen? It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Would you join me in prayer?